Lord, I ask that you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And as you turn there, I'm going to give you my, the main point of my sermon. If there's anything I want you to walk away with, uh, it is this. It is that if you are a Christian, you have been given a new heart. And you have the ability then to listen and obey. If you are not a Christian, uh, you have no ability to listen and obey. And you need a new heart. Uh, that is really the summary of the Sermon on the Mount. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we will get one in your hands. Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we are going to hit all three chapters. I figure that I'll give myself about an hour per chapter. Um, so if that's cool with you, we will just kind of like settle in and get cozy uh, for the next three hours. And if you're visiting, I'm just kidding. Um, Let's pray, and let's ask God to help us. Father, we do ask that you open our eyes to your text, to your word this morning. Speak to us. Encourage us. Uh, God, we ask that we would recognize that we do have a new heart in Jesus Christ. And for those uh, here this morning who do not know Christ as their Savior, I pray that you might give them a new heart this morning. Transform us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verses one through 16 is what I will read, and then we will dive in and look at the whole three chapters. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the, the, the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In the year 1853, a man named Hudson Taylor stepped off a boat in the great city of Shanghai. China had just opened their ports to uh, foreigners, and, uh, and, and Hudson Taylor moved there and joined about a dozen others uh, who were seeking to share the gospel in China. Now, Hudson came from, uh, uh, from England, and it was uh, very uncouth uh, to identify with someone other than an Englishman back in those days. Uh, as soon as Hudson Taylor stepped off of the ship, he made a decision. He would begin to dress like the Chinese. Uh, he grew, uh, grew a pigtail, which is uh, what the Chinese men wore back in that day. And many of his 
sort of like Englishmen were very upset about that and very worried about him. Um, Hudson Taylor was very unhappy with the way that missionaries at the time in China did their work. He was unhappy with the fact that they would just simply mingle with other English businessmen. He was unhappy unhappy with the fact that they would just mingle with the diplomats and the powerful and those with money. In contrast, Hudson Taylor uh, began to travel up and down, sail the Hangpu River, handing out Bibles, handing out tracts, and just seeking to love his Chinese brethren. He became sick, and he went home for a season. While he was home, he began to translate the Bible into the language of the people. He realized that there was a great need for those giving birth, and so he trained to become a midwife. Uh, He went back to China and began to serve, began to meet needs. He began began to see 200 patients every day. He just completely saw life and the world in a totally different way than his English counterparts. He was criticized He was looked down upon. He was seen as as someone who was endangering women as he was allowing single women to go out into unprotected uh, fronts and into the interior of China. But but he was just like, we've we've got this is this is what we're about. Let's just share the gospel with people. This is good news. Forget our customs, forget our cultures. Let me read you this quote from, from Hudson Taylor in sort of contrast to the Englishmen of his day. He said, China is not to be won for Christ by quiet, ease-loving men and women. The stamp of men and women we need is such as we'll, we'll, we'll put Jesus, uh, uh, China, and souls first and foremost in everything and at every time, even life itself must be secondary. Martin Lloyd-Jones, commenting on Hudson Taylor about uh, uh, 50 years later, and others, and also Martin Lloyd-Jones commenting on the Sermon on the Mount itself, he said this, listen to this. Lloyd-Jones says, Our Lord himself lived the Sermon on the Mount. These uh, These three chapters we're about to get into. The apostles lived the Sermon on the Mount. And if you take the trouble to read the lives of the saints down through the centuries, the men who have, uh, and I would add the women, the men and women who have been most greatly used of God, you will find that every time they have been men who have taken the Sermon on the Mount, not only seriously, but literally. Hudson Taylor lived the Sermon on the Mount. This is how the Christian is meant to live. Today we get into what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And what Lloyd-Jones is telling us is that if we were to look back on times past and we were to study the greats of our faith, we would find that every single one of them was, was a man or a woman who took very seriously the verses that are in these three chapters known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, uh, I've already done a whole series on the Sermon on the Mount. You can go on our website and you can find it and kind of went verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm not going to uh, spend three hours uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. As I said, we're we're really not going to get too much into the Sermon on the Mount. I want to talk to you today 
but how you should read the Sermon on the Mount and how you should understand the Sermon on the Mount so that you can go back into it in your devotional times, in your private reading, or in small groups and be able to rightly understand and apply this wonderful, magnificent teaching of our King Jesus into your own life. Let me begin with, uh, with how you should not read the Sermon on the Mount. I'll give you four ways not to read the Sermon on the Mount. Way number one, to not, how not to read it. Uh, do not read it in a dismissive fashion. Do not be dismissive. So there are complete traditions out there within evangelicalism, within the Christian world, um, that basically say the Sermon on the Mount is for the millennial kingdom that is to come, a time in the future. It's not for us today, so therefore, don't worry about it. Just kind of set it aside. It'll come into play later on in the future. And it's just sort of this completely dismissive approach. I think it's wrongly, uh, there's a wrong understanding of the kingdom there. The kingdom of God is, is here. It's not yet, but it's here. It's, it's a reality. It's, it's, it's truly arrived. It's inaugurated. It's not yet consummated. But the kingdom of God is truly at hand. And so the Sermon on the Mount must be taken seriously. It's for us today. Matthew 28. Jesus says, teach them all things I have commanded. Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? I think Jesus had his own sermon in mind. Uh, Second way, not to read the Sermon on the Mount. With tunnel vision. Don't read it with tunnel vision. So there have been other traditions that have kind of cropped up over the years where where people with, with good intentions say, let's just focus on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to create entire churches and communities totally, solely focused on living out the Sermon on the Mount. And the idea was, if we can do this, and if we can teach others to live out the Sermon on the Mount, then we can create a culture without poverty. We can create a culture where people don't abuse one another. And so it's sort of like this totally like straight-up optimistic approach to, to the Sermon on the Mount. Abandon all of their scripture. Let's just look at the Sermon on the Mount. All right, Don't look at it that way either. The whole corpus of the Bible is ours. Every bit of it is authoritative and for us. We need it all, not just these three chapters. Thirdly, do not read it in a legalistic fashion. Now, this is a tricky one that a lot of people kind of fall into. We'll read, we'll read verses such as um, uh, chapter 5, verse 29 and 30, where it says, pluck out your eye and cut off your hand if it's going to lead you into maybe lust. And there have been literally people who have plucked out their eyes, all right, or cut off their hands because it was leading them into sin. Or uh, we might read, uh, we might read in chapter 6, verse 14, Jesus says, uh, he says, forgive. If you don't forgive, you're not forgiven, Right? And there will be some people that say, look, in order for you to be forgiven, you have to forgive. In order for you to attain God's favor in your life, you have to pluck out your eye and cut off your hand. Meaning, you have to do these things, and if you do these things, then God will accept you. Or chapter 5, verse 20. He says there's a... uh, There's a righteousness that you must have that is greater than the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? They were the religious leaders of the day. Jesus was telling his disciples, you've got to be greater than the Pharisees 
in order to be part of the kingdom. You have to have a greater righteousness than the most religious people of the day in order to be part of the kingdom. So what does this mean? Does this mean that we have some kind of spiritual elitist group, these super righteous holy people that never sin, and those are the Christians? You see, that we, we should not read this in a legalistic way, saying we must follow these things in order to be accepted by God. Well, fourthly, you also don't want to read it in a licentious way. Here's what I mean by that. Some, reacting to the legalism that, that others fall into, say, forget it. Forget even trying to be holy. Forget even trying to do these things. There's one pastor who is very unapologetic about his view on the Sermon on the Mount. He basically says all of the Sermon on the Mount is impossible for you. It's completely impossible. And that's the point. You can't do it. Don't try. Jesus did it for you. Jesus is your righteousness. True. But, but here's what can kind of come out of that thinking is, 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 well, I don't need to try. I don't need to, uh, uh, to, to actually sacrifice and work hard and, and, uh, and put some energy and some sweat into following Jesus. I'll just kind of be passive about it. So how should we understand and read the Sermon on the Mount? Let me give you uh, a couple ideas here. Number one. Number one. Read the Sermon on the Mount in such a way that it shows you that you do need a Savior and it shows you how to live. Meaning it's a both and. Read it in such a way that shows you, you do need a Savior. Like you have not followed these things. You are broken. You have hated. You have uh, been filled with anger. You have lusted. You, you, I mean, you're just continually uh, holding unforgiveness back from someone. You need a Savior. It should crush you. It should bring you to your knees. And read in such a way that says, that, but this is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is how you should live. This is what you ought to strive for with the help of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Secondly, understand that this is about the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. But the letter does matter. All right? Spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, but the letter does matter. Let me explain this to you. Uh, through music. Leo, grab your trumpet. So I've asked Leo if he could um, play a piece of music according to the letter of the music. And then I'm going to ask him to play it the way it should be played according to the spirit of the music. All right? So Leo, first, what, what is the piece? Rhythm Changes. Who wrote it? George Gershwin. So play it according to the letter of the music.
All right, that's enough. That's enough. That's <laughs> All right, now Leo, could you play it in the, uh, the, the way that George Gershwin <clears throat> wrote it to be played, meant it to be played? saying you see the difference here letter versus spirit now let me ask you this though and I should have asked you to play something entirely he could I could say hey play an entirely different piece right so you've got a couple you've got three kinds of uh, folks here you've got one who says it's, it's according to the letter of the law it's rigid it's just simply following you know if it says slap your brother uh, the brother, dude that slaps you on the cheek turn the other cheek you rigidly kind of follow that out and you, you walk out of here and, and somebody slaps you on the cheek and you just rigidly give them the other cheek to slap, all right? Or on the flip side, you might have somebody who say, yeah, it's the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, so we're going to put this music aside and play a tune of, uh, that, that, that we're making up as we go, which I should ask him to do. The problem is, is he would, it would be so great, it wouldn't make my point, right? <laughs> Um, see, the letter does matter. I mean, these are general principles that are to be taken seriously. The, meta, the letter does matter. The song has been written. Our job, as we read and study and understand the Sermon on the Mount, is to become so involved in the song, to become so familiar with these general principles that we can then go out and we can play this song in our lives a hundred different ways in our own context with our own situations, uh, applying them in every one of our thousand unique opportunities that we face every day. Does that make sense? So Jesus here is giving us something that is phenomenal. He's giving us something that is life. He's giving us something that guides us into all reality. Now, a little bit of context here. We've already seen that Matthew has introduced Jesus as the king. And there is a new kingdom that he has brought. That's what we've seen so far in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, in the same way that God spoke to his people from Mount Sinai, God speaks again from a mountain. And this time, Jesus gathers together his disciples. We see this in verse 1. He sees all of the crowds, and it says he went up the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, eventually, we see by the end of the sermon that there are crowds that have gathered around him. But I want you to see that he is addressing this to his disciples. He's addressing this to those who have ears to hear. To those who have a heart to understand, a mind that has been opened up. And what he's doing is this. He's showing them the way of the kingdom. This is what it looks like to be a citizen of my kingdom, Jesus is saying. Now, if being a Christian is truly a transfer of citizenship from this earth to citizen 
of heaven. We are no longer a citizen of this broken world, but we are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Our citizenship is not here, it's there. And one day there will come here. Right? We are citizens not of this broken, fallen world, but we're citizens of God's kingdom, if that is true. And if we're talking about an entire change in citizenship, then we've got to listen to and we've got to understand what the king is saying. And we've got to obey the king. So we must listen and obey. We see this throughout the book of Matthew. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount. We must listen and we must obey. The life of a Christian, you could say, is one of listening and obeying. We listen to the Word of God, whether it's in our private devotional time, whether it's on Sunday mornings. We listen and we obey the King. But friends, listen, if this is a true, truly a change of citizenship, I mean a complete transfer, we need more than just simply some elbow grease to obey this King. We need to be completely transformed. And that's what this sermon is about. It's about a new heart. Let me just briefly give you an overview of the sermon. Let's just, this is sort of the 30,000 foot overview. If you were looking at a Google map of Baltimore, that's kind of what we're talking about here. We're not talking about what Druid Hill Avenue looks like. We're talking about what the whole city looks like. We're not talking about just what one verse looks like in here. We're talking about what the whole of uh, this this kingdom looks like. We're going to do a flyover, if you would, of the Sermon on the Mount. So let me try to break it down for you here. First, what we see is the Christian's character. We see the Christian's character. And what we see in this Christian's character is that the Christian's character is not of this world. This is what these first verses, verses 2 through verse 16, is all about. These what are called the blesseds or the beatitudes. Now let me ask you this, if I were to say, blessed are children whose last name is Kurz, for they will inherit $15 my entire estate when I die. Or blessed are two girls with long hair, for they look, they will look just like their mother. Or blessed is the little boy who wears a Batman mask. For he is going to go on a trip with his daddy. Now let me ask you this. Am I saying by that 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 they must take the name Kurz in order to have this blessing? Am I saying that they must keep their hair long in order to look like their mother? Am I saying that he must wear a Batman mask to show show me that he's tough in order to go on a daddy-son trip? No, of course not. I'm I'm giving you the character. I'm telling you about my kids. This is who they are. I'm not saying this is what they must do in order to be accepted by me and be in my family. I'm saying this is who they are. Blessed are they. Blessed are the ones who have these, these traits. This is who they are. Why are they blessed for this is what they are going to have? This is how we should understand these what we call beatitudes. This isn't so much what you should try to do. This is who you are as a Christian. 
I mean, we could just flip these and just think about maybe you have uh, flipped these in your own life and you can understand that this is not good when these things are reversed. For example, how much happiness does it bring into your life when you're a divisive person? How much happiness does it bring, instead of being a peacemaker, you're, you're, uh, you're making war with others? No, we, we are to be broken people. We are to be weeping over our sin. Blessed are those who weep. We are to be peacemakers. We, we, we are to be pure in heart. We are, we, are, we are merciful people because we've received mercy. We, we hunger and we thirst for righteousness. Amen? Look at the first one right there. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize that I'm broke. I am spiritually broke. I've got no money to bring. I can't earn my way into this kingdom. Blessed are you. You poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, this is just simply saying this is, the, this is who you are. This is your character. And it's not of this world Look what is like, it's so interesting what is absent from this list. What our world calls blessed is not even on this list at all. It doesn't say blessed are those who have 2.5 children. Blessed are those who are married. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say blessed are those who make it out and get a house in the suburbs, or blessed are those who are successful, or blessed are, are the men only, or blessed are the, those, those who are popular and those who are pretty. It doesn't say that. It doesn't look at our world standards and say blessed are those who are powerful here on this earth. It actually has otherworldly standards. Blessed are those whose citizenship is not here, but it's elsewhere. For yours is the kingdom. For you will inherit the earth. Look at the last one. Blessed are those who are reviled. This is in some ways how we know who the citizens are. They're people that are reviled. They're people that are persecuted. You know, uh, in, in the world in which we live, uh, those that are like taking the scripture seriously and and the gospel seriously, are more and more in the minority. Uh, it used to be, maybe go back 50 years, it used to be kind of like a socially ex uh, expected reality for you to be a member of a church. You know, like the upstanding citizen in the community was also part of the big Baptist church downtown. Right? Well, not anymore. We live in a new world. And I want to say, uh, in about 20 years, I'm guessing that there will be no reason for a lukewarm Christian to be in the church. I don't think they'll be in the church. There will be no social reason. There'll be, there'll be nothing about the church that would attract you unless you just have been broken to yourself and you recognize that your citizenship is not in this earth. And so it's okay to lose now. It's okay to be persecuted. It's okay to be hated because I'm loved elsewhere. I'm in this community of people that are persecuted. Friends, in, in this world in which we live, I'm not saying that you should be a jerk. If you're persecuted for being a jerk, you are not blessed, okay? If you're persecuted, I saw some video of like some mom walking through Target like, 
preaching about God's judgment coming down on Target for the transgender bathroom thing. And, you know, she gets the cold shoulder. Oh, I'm so persecuted. That's not, I don't think that's what we're talking about here. All right? Don't be a, don't, you're not persecuted for being stupid. I'm talking about that, look, if you are genuine, like you're, you're living the Jesus life, and you're loving in the way that Jesus loves, and that brings, and it will, it brings persecution on you, you are blessed. Because you know that you're following the Savior who was persecuted. And let me just throw this in too. If, if you are not persecuted, you're like, I'm not reviled. I want you to take a, a serious look at your life. Because you should be. There should be some aspect of your life that brings upon the scorn of others. This is just a char- this is our character. This is who we are out of this world. Secondly, we see our characteristics. We are distinct from the world. This is that, this bit of salt and light. And then we see all of these various examples of showing how these, these Christians are just distinct from the world. They're, they're different. I, uh, do you guys know Denny? He's a fairly new member here at the church. He's a cook at a great restaurant here in Baltimore. And Denny came over to our house a couple months ago and grilled some hamburgers. Now, in the past, when I would grill hamburgers, I would form the meat, the beef, and I would just throw it on the grill just like that. Denny uh, formed the beef, and he took salt, salt jar, and he just like, and I was thinking like, you almost done there? Like, are you trying to kill us? Right? Hold up. And then he flipped it over. All right? He threw that bad boy on the grill. It was the best hamburger I've ever had in my life. Like, I make my hamburgers look white now but with salt. Just like, you would think it's just like this little uh, sugar-coated patty of some sort. Um, or maybe you've been without lights. Maybe BG&E cut off the lights. Maybe uh, a thunderstorm, lightning came through, knocked out the lights. You remember what it's like when the lights come back on? Remember how wonderful that is? You just, it's just like, oh my goodness, common grace. It's wonderful. Electricity, light, I can see. Salt and light. This is what we are to be. We're to bring flavor to the world around us. We're to make the world around us taste good. People should come into this community. They should say, that, that ta- there's something about that that tastes really good. Light, we shed light on things. Now, light is beautiful, it's wonderful, but light, shedding light on a, uh, a, a dark, uh, previously dark, dirty room is going to also show some things that you don't want to see. Well, Christians are people of salt. and We are people of light. We are to live lives in such a way that, uh, that, that display these characteristics then that are distinct from the world. Let's just kind of look through chapter 6 here, or the rest of chapter 5 rather, briefly, and, and kind of compare it to the earth today. Uh, so this issue of murder, think of Baltimore. We've had 30, 344 murders in 2015. We've had an additional 92 murders in 2016. Uh, these Christians are to be a people who not only do not kill, 
but they are to be a people who don't even hate. Like so distinct from the world. Or going on, this issue of adultery. Adultery is like so rampant. It boggles my mind sometimes as I'm talking to people, and they're just like casually talking about how so-and-so cheated on somebody. And I don't know if they cheat. They might cheat. I don't know if they cheat. Just so casual. This is like, are you serious? And then if we kind of throw lust and pornography into that, sometimes I'll hang out with a group of, uh, group of guys, and they'll just pass around porn as, like, in the way that I used to trade baseball cards. You know, like, it's nothing. And we are not only to be faithful to our spouse, we are to not give ourselves to lust. Not even a hint of immorality in us. So distinct from the world. Or this issue of divorce. Leaving one another till uh, I, I do, I marry you, I do, till feelings do I part, right? That's sort of our world's vows today. But no, we are to be distinct. We are to be people who live lives that are committed to one another completely. Or this issue of oaths. In our world today, yes does not mean yes. Yeah, sure, I'll be there means I'll think about coming. I'll think about being there for you. But look, we are to be so distinct from the world in that our yes just simply means yes. Like it's just that simple. If you say yes, what does that mean? Say it together. Does Tony, is it just Tony that gets it? <laughs> what does that mean? Your yes means? And no means? So it's okay to say what? It's <laughs> and moving on. When it comes to this issue of enemies, all right, we don't hate each other. We, don't, we, we, we recognize that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so we're called then to love our enemies. We see those that hate us. We see those that we would consider to be our enemies. And our heart breaks for them. We love the love of Christ. So distinct from the world are our character traits. How is this possible? It's because of who our Savior is. It's because of Jesus. Jesus loved us when we were his enemy. Jesus loved us when we were cheating on him, an adulterer. He loved us when we hated him. He loved us in such a great way. And our response to his love, our response to his grace, is to be a people that just emulate that kind of grace and love in the world around us. Distinct from the world around us. Thirdly, we see in the Sermon on the Mount the Christian consciousness. We see our consciousness. And that is this. We are to be always aware of God's presence. That is the Christian consciousness. You know the movie Matrix? All right, so... If you were a Christian around 1999, 2000, 2001, you've heard hundreds of sermon illustrations on the ma- uh, using the matrix, right? Is it, was anybody a Christian around those years? All right, you know what I'm talking about. Let me give you one more. I'm just going to give you one more, and this will be the last matrix sermon illustration uh, that anybody will ever use. This is it. Just kind of tweet this, Facebook it, pastors, it's done. Um, so Neo, uh, Keanu Reeves, Neo, his eyes are open to the reality that he's living in a program. And when his eyes are opened, 
and then he goes back into that program, um, he lives in a totally different way. His life has been transformed. He knows that there's something much bigger than this reality. You could say that he knows now real reality. This is a Christian consciousness. This is sort of our eyes have been opened to the fact that there's more than just this earth. Our eyes have been focused, uh, uh, been open to the fact that, that we are always in the presence of God. This old Latin phrase, quorum Deo, which means living before the face of God. That's how we live our lives. And that's what we see in chapter 6 here. It's all about living before the presence of God. So we think of giving. We think of helping those in need. We think of fasting or spiritual disciplines or prayer. Notice that each one of these in this chapter are focused on the reality that we're doing these things before God, not before men. Why is it that so often when you give, you want everybody to know about it, right? You serve somebody and you want to take a picture of it and put it on Instagram, right? Mm. (laughs) Why is it that when you pray, you have to talk about it on Facebook? Why is it that that when we're doing something, uh, some kind of spiritual discipline, we have to somehow lift ourselves up and make sure everybody knows what we're doing for Jesus? Why, why is it? Why is it that we live so much of our life, even the, the good things that we do, uh, seeking to, to, to do it in front of men? It's because, it's because we are filled with shame. We're filled with guilt. We're filled with uh, these questions of who am I? And we are constantly looking for others and for their approval. But the Christian is someone who simply says, unlike the Pharisee, the false righteousness, the, the, the Christian says, No, it's not about you seeing me. I'm living quorum Deo. I'm living in the presence of God. I give in such a way that God knows. I serve in such a way that God knows. I fast and I go about my spiritual disciplines in such a way that God is pleased. Not so much man. We live our lives in the presence of God. You see, when we recognize that Christ is indeed our Savior and that He is our hope, our fear of man, shame, guilt, all of the stuff that we deal with just simply fades. And now the reason we care about what others think of us is simply because we want them to see Jesus in us. That's all we're concerned about. Our eyes are on the King living before his presence. Lastly, we see the Sermon on the Mount focus on our Christian concern. And that is to be aware of God's throne. Not only are Christians living aware of his presence, we are living our lives aware that God is sitting on his throne. That's how the Sermon on the Mount ends. There are two ways. There are two roads. There are two kinds of trees. There's the way of life and the way of death. There's the road, the road that leads to destruction, the road, the road that leads to life. There are, are sick trees that don't bear fruit, and there are healthy trees that always bear fruit. We, as we live our lives, recognize that we are standing before the judge. And we know 
that we are a citizen of this kingdom simply because we bear fruit. We know that one another are citizens of this kingdom because we bear fruit. We can see it. We can taste it. You could say that the church in some ways, that we are a bunch of fruit inspectors. So somebody wants to join the church, and we're like, okay, let's, let's inspect the fruit. Oh, we see some fruit. Join. Fruit in your life should be immensely encouraging for you. It's written in the scriptures to encourage you, to know that you are a healthy tree, that you've been given life and you're bearing fruit. And I would say I am encouraged pastoring this congregation and seeing fruit, seeing people who were once given to lust and they kill it, once given to hatred and anger and they kill it, loving people in new ways, extending themselves in new ways, sharing the gospel with the lost fruit. We were created to live under God's kingship. We rebelled against his kingship. The king came into the world and lived the righteous life that we should have lived. He lived the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus never for one second wavered from anything that he spoke here. And his righteousness is given to us. He died on the cross for our sins, taking our penalty in his body on the tree. And all who turn from their sins and trust in him have the promise that they are forgiven from their sins. They are cleansed. That they are given righteousness. And that they will spend eternity with God. Are you a Christian? Do you have... Uh, display this character that is out of this world. Do you recognize these characteristics that are not of the world? Do you have this new consciousness in which you live always before the presence of God? Do you embrace this one concern that God is on His throne? In chapter 7, verse 24, He clearly says, for all who hear what I'm saying, and do them. For all who hear these words and obey them. The life of the Christian can be summed up in this way. We listen and we obey. We listen to our King and we obey Him. We live the life that He has given us to live. Yet there is something that we must recognize that is a thread through this entire sermon. And that is this. The obedience that is required is indeed impossible on your own. This is not something that we should just simply lift up and put into law and require non-Christians to follow. That would be heresy. This requires something. And what it requires is a new heart. All throughout the sermon, we see that he's not just simply focusing on external actions alone. He's focusing on the heart. Not just on your religious duties, but on your heart. What does your heart look like? In the New Covenant, the the external standards are not the issue but rather the law of God has now become an intrinsic part of the newly created people and they have been transformed. 
Every point of this Sermon on the Mount shows us the difference between the fake righteousness of those that just simply try to clean up the outside of the cup, the fake righteousness of those that just simply try to do good deeds, the fake righteousness of the religious leaders and the Pharisees of his day. It shows us the difference between this fake righteousness and the real righteousness that just simply comes from a new heart. From being given a new heart. Now you might ask this question, so then how do I get a new heart? First, let this sermon crush you. Let it crush you. Let it speak loudly into your ears and let you, uh, may you hear that you have indeed fallen short of these things. That you daily don't add up to what Christ lifts up. Let it crush you. I, I, my, my prayer is that, that you might uh, become poor in spirit this morning. That you might recognize that it is not those who come with, uh, with, with their own righteousness that enter into the kingdom, but it's those who come broken with nothing, naked, crawling to the throne of God, saying, I have nothing to bring. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's how he begins his sermon. For yours is the kingdom. You've been given a new heart. First, let it crush you. Secondly, cry out, give me a new heart. Change me, O God. Take away this old heart and put something in it in me that is soft, that is responsive to who you are, to the beauty and the magnificence of Jesus Christ. And then listen to his words, the word of God, and obey him. What was it that made Hudson Taylor distinct? It wasn't really his actions at all. It was his new heart. Yeah. What is it that makes you distinct? It's not just simply the great things you can do for the world. It's not just simply the fact that you are a good person. It's simply the fact that, that while you live an ordinary life, that God has placed a new heart into you. May God lead us in his ways. May we live lives that display his kingdom. May we be salt and light in this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we could come into your word. We ask that you would help us as we seek to apply these things into our lives. Lord, give us new hearts. We thank you for the new heart that we have I pray if there is any here who does not know you as their Savior, that right now you might put a new heart in them, that they might believe, that they might have faith, that you might transform us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.